welcome to the Willie Jackson Experiment. I'm your host, the one, the only, Willie Jackson. Alright, I got a, a great episode for you. I kind of was doing a little bit of research and looking into the history of Desert Storm. Um, actually officially started um, about uh, 33 years ago in August. So um, it's crazy that it's been that long. Um, they call it the 100, 100 hour ground war because that's how long the ground operations lasted which is pretty much a record for any kind of major conflict um you know the that came with like the longest tank kill that was over 4,000 meters that still uh remains the record um the longest uh bombing run where um seven b-52s launched from uh the u.s mainland and flew uh basically non-stop and uh, were the first uh, cruise missiles to hit uh, Baghdad. Uh, so there was a lot of interesting things. Um, and uh, I, of course, found some metal. Um, a guy by the name of Alexander Alexander J. Terrell Music. Uh, go subscribe to his channel. Uh, through his uh, song of his in there. Um, as well as um, Sabaton had some in there we have a uh, metal trump from a uh, large runner retriever um and this conflict uh, actually started january 17th of uh 1991 uh when saddam hussein was given an ultimatum to uh leave kuwait city and so that's when they actually started the operation uh desert storm uh, it was uh, 42 countries led by the U.S. Um, there was uh, 697,000 U.S. troops and the total duration of the war was approximately 43 days. So I found some uh, pretty cool audio um, from uh, the uh, operation uh the operation room was the channel so go over there if you want to get more uh military uh history the operation room had a bunch of good stuff so they're covering it pretty good so um i use their audio and uh it's a uh, pretty interesting looking back um you know uh iraq was actually trying to terrorize all their neighbors with the scud missiles and that was when the u.s introduced the patriot missile and I think we did a really good job protecting all the uh, neighbors around there, Saudi Arabia, Israel, stuff like that. So, I don't know. I, I hope you uh, enjoy this episode. And uh, I just decided to uh, do something a little different this week. So, um, hope you guys enjoy it. And I really appreciate all the great comments and reviews that I've received. Um, it just means a lot that you guys are enjoying the content. And, of course making america metal again so appreciate you guys joining me every week and uh remember make every day an easy day peace
you'll take my life, but I'll take your stew. You'll fire your musket, but I'll run you through. So when you're waiting for the next attack, you better stand. There's no turning back. The bugle sounds. The charge begins. But on this battlefield, no one wins. The smell of liquor smoke and horse breath as I punch them into certain death. Big horse, he swats with fear. We break the run. The mighty roar of the Russian guns. And as we race towards the human wall, he screams of pain as my comrades fall. We heard old buddies that lay on the ground. And the Russians fire another round. We get so near, yet so far away. We won't live to fight another day. We will grow again, we will thrive again, and we will make America metal again. Thank you, God bless you, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, thank you. The Gulf War, August 2nd, 1990 through February 28th, 1991, codenamed Operation Desert Shield. August 2nd, 1990, through January 17, 1991, for operations leading to the buildup of troops and defense of Saudi Arabia and Operation Desert Storm, January 17, 1991, through February 28, 1991. In its combat phase was a war waged by coalition forces from 35 nations led by the United States against Iraq in response to Iraq's invasion and annexation of Kuwait arising from oil pricing and production disputes. On August 2, 1990, the Iraqi army invaded and occupied Kuwait, which was met with international condemnation and brought immediate economic sanctions against Iraq by members of the UN Security Council. UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and US President George H.W. Bush deployed forces into Saudi Arabia and urged other countries to send their forces to the scene. An array of nations joined the coalition forming the largest military alliance since World War II. Most of the coalition's military forces were from the US, with Saudi Arabia, the United Kingdom, and Egypt as leading contributors, in that order. Kuwait and Saudi Arabia paid around 32 billion US dollars of the 60 billion US dollar cost. The war marked the introduction of live news broadcasts from the battle's front lines, principally by the US network CNN. The war has also earned the nickname Video Game War, after the daily broadcast of images from cameras onboard U.S. bombers during Operation Desert Storm. The initial conflict to expel Iraqi forces from Kuwait began with an aerial and naval bombardment on January 17, 1991, continuing for five weeks. A ground assault on February 24 followed this. This was a decisive victory for the coalition forces, who liberated Kuwait and advanced into Iraqi territory. The coalition ceased its advance and declared a ceasefire 100 hours after the ground campaign started. Aerial and ground combat was confined to Iraq, Kuwait, and areas on Saudi Arabia's border. 
Iraq launched Scud missiles against Israel and coalition targets in Saudi Arabia. Vidipedia.com is the video version of Wikipedia. Dubbed the YouTube of Wikipedia, every topic is simply explained in a short video. If you like our video, please like, share, and subscribe to our channel for more videos like this. Please also leave us a comment below and tell us what topics you want us to cover next.
With the coalition closing in from multiple directions, resistance fighters in Kuwait City alert the CIA that a mass exodus of Iraqi troops from the capital is in motion. A developmental E-8 ground surveillance aircraft, rushed into theatre in time for the conflict, is ordered to scan the area, and detects 150 tanks, trucks and confiscated civilian vehicles forming into convoys and retreating north from Kuwait City on a highway towards Iraq. Coalition commanders instruct Colonel Hornberg, commander of 4th Wing, to deploy his F-15 Strike Eagles. I know you've just finished a hard night's flying, but I've got a job for you. I want you to put your guys back in their aircraft, fly over to Kuwait and stop a convoy. Stop it at all costs. The 12 Eagles, along with Navy A6 intruders, drop cluster bombs on the lead and rear vehicles of the convoy, stopping it in place. These 150 vehicles are just the first in a line of thousands retreating from Kuwait. Over the next 48 hours, hundreds of coalition bombers hammer the traffic jam. The ensuing carnage on Highway 80 will earn it the nickname, the Highway of Death. The commanders of the Tawakalna and Medina Republican Guard Divisions know that they must delay the advance of Seven Corps as long as they can to allow the escape of Iraqi units in the area, including other Republican Guard Divisions. They also know that this is very likely to be a sacrificial task. They deploy in a defensive line alongside regular Iraqi divisions to meet the oncoming American and British armour anyway. They show courage in doing so. The 2nd Armoured Cavalry Regiment are continuing their probe eastwards with orders to find the Tawakalna Division, but not to become decisively engaged. They are the lead scouting elements of 7th Corps. The British 1st Armoured Division have been holding a defensive line against Iraqi counter-attack throughout the night, and now advance east towards the Kuwaiti border. Their objective is to sweep through the multiple Iraqi brigades and divisions on the southern flank, splitting the Iraqi front line in half and isolating the Republican Guard units from possible reinforcements from Kuwait, allowing the rest of 7th Corps to hit them in concentration. At 7am, the 4th Armoured Brigade assaults the left flank of the Iraqi front line, who are caught off guard in a defensive line facing south towards the border. Unlike other frontline divisions, the Iraqi 52nd Armoured Division puts up a spirited response, firing and manoeuvring with their T-55 tanks. The return fire is ineffective, however, and throughout the morning, Challenger 1 tanks clear the way to their objective, destroying numerous Iraqi tank companies. The 7th Armoured Brigade, famously named the Desert Rats for their role in North Africa in the Second World War, sweep along the flank of another Iraqi line formed just to the north, catching the Iraqi troops watching south towards the battle raging with 4th Armoured. A Challenger tank of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards makes the longest recorded tank kill in history at 4,700 metres, a record that stands to this day. Iraqis do not maintain all-round reconnaissance and a company of Spartan armoured personnel carriers hook around to their north and attack them from the rear with Milan anti-tank missiles. The division methodically continues east throughout the day, clearing objective after objective without loss. Disaster strikes in the afternoon, when a pair of American A-10s arriving on station are given a verbal description of the location of enemy tanks by a returning F-16. They approach an area 20 kilometres from their assigned tasking, and spot vehicles below. They don't see the inverted V markings on the side of the vehicles indicating friendly forces, and mistake them for Iraqi T-55 tanks. They fire two Maverick missiles, 
hitting two British warrior infantry fighting vehicles. Unfortunately, nine are killed. The 2nd Armoured Cavalry Regiment has led the US Armoured Divisions since the beginning of the invasion. An instinctively mobile unit, they've had a frustrating stop-start morning, advancing but having to stop to wait for the heavy armour behind to catch up and organise into a line of attack. They edge forward to find the Republican Guard, where their orders are to not become engaged, but to allow the 1st Infantry Division to move to the front to do the fighting when they're discovered. They've already discovered and destroyed outer scout units of the Tawakauna Republican Guard Division. The sandstorms are terrible, and the visibility is down to a few hundred metres, so they edge forward without scout helicopter support. The three squadrons of 2nd Armoured Cavalry, named Cougar, Wolfpack and War Eagle, advance. Cougar Squadron is on the regiment's left flank, and is made up of four troops, Eagle, Fox, Ghost and Hawk each approximately made up of 9 Abrams tanks and 13 Bradleys. At 3.20pm, 7 Corps Commander General Franks orders 2nd Armoured Cavalry to lead the line forward from the 60th to the 67th Easting, or the 67th kilometre of longitude east of the official campaign map centreline. The Republican Guard is reported to be just kilometres away, but the information is two hours old. Bradley commanders peer into the sandstorm with their infrared sights. They roll forward slowly and deliberately. The young men in the vehicles are itching for the fight they all know is about to start. A pair of scouting BMPs and three solitary dug-in tanks are spotted by scouts. Lieutenant Haynes holds his Bradley and lines up the first tank with his obstacle sensor. He swallows a few times and fires a tow anti-tank missile into the unsuspecting tank. Quickly, he fires a second into the second tank, and 25mm cannon rounds into the third. Scouts take fire from a cluster of secluded buildings. Seeing no evidence of civilians in the cluster, Captain McMaster, commander of Eagle Troop, warms his tank crews up to the coming fight by ordering a short burst of fire on the buildings. The small arms fire stops. Suddenly, a tank shell explodes just short of a Bradley. The vehicle commander, Lieutenant Gauthier, yells, Driver, stop, gunner, missile, tank. He finds the Tawakauna Republican Guard Division T-72 tank that's just fired on him, barely visible at 800 metres in front. He and a nearby Bradley rapidly return fire with tows, and the T-72's turret explodes in a fireball. McMaster senses that a major combat engagement is imminent, and calls over the radio, Eagle Troop, Battle Stations, Go to tank's lead. We're going to tank's lead. The Abrams tanks and his troop move to the front in a wedge formation. At 4.18pm, Cougar Squadron is ordered to advance to the 70th Easting. In a Bradley belonging to Ghost Troop, Lieutenant John Hillen radio acknowledges the receipt of the advance order and, fearing tank mines in the area, moves to sit on two Kevlar flag vests. Staff Sergeant Burns asks him why he's sitting on the vest. I want to be able to make more hillings when this thing is over, is the response. At 4.18, the great tank battle that they've been preparing for for several months begins. Through the clearing weather, McMaster spots the enemy. Contact, five armoured vehicles direct front, three more off to the left. The enemy tanks are traversing their turrets towards Eagle Troop. 
He pushes the button on his Abrams laser rangefinder. 1,420 yards. Fire Sabot, he yells. The first round hits a T-72. Rapidly reloading, the second shot is away on the second enemy tank within three seconds. A ferocious volley of enemy fire lands amongst Eagle Troop. His vehicles are just cresting a hill, and to his horror, McMaster sees a mass of enemy tanks waiting for them on the other side. Eagle Troop aggressively charges forwards, with all Abrams and Bradleys now furiously returning fire at the enemy. There is little choice but to take the fight to the enemy, ignoring their regimental order not to become decisively engaged. Their troop of 9 Abrams and 13 Bradleys are going head-to-head -head with 39 Iraqi tanks, 54 armoured vehicles and 200 infantrymen. Marauding into the enemy lines, McMaster's tanks have already destroyed 15 T-72s, and the closing range is only making the engagement more violent. A nearby scout platoon of Bradleys race over to reinforce Eagle Troop. A deadly ZSU-23 anti-aircraft gun opens fire on them, and they calmly destroy it with a tow missile. The Bradleys open up on the entrenched infantry with 20mm cannon fire. While Eagle Troop are taking hits, no vehicles are destroyed. The infrared sights on the American vehicles are far superior to the optics in the Iraqi tanks, whose commanders are relying on the regular lens sights to spot the marauding tanks through the storm. Eagle Troop violently bashes through the outer line of tanks, and spots a circle formation of 17 T-72s to their left, supposedly a reserve that would react to attempts at penetration or encirclement. They never get the chance. Within seconds, the entire formation is obliterated. The rest of the 2nd Armoured Cavalry Regiment and the 1st and 3rd Armoured Divisions are now making first contact with the Republican Guard and the remains of the Iraqi 52nd Armoured Division fleeing into the area from the British advancing in the south. Eagle Troop have found by far the largest defensive concentration. Ghost Troop are moving parallel to Eagle Troop, just north, in a fight of their own. Seeing the carnage that Eagle's Abrams are inflicting to their south, Ghost desperately try to keep a safe distance to prevent a friendly fire incident. In doing so, one Bradley accidentally drives into a minefield and over an anti-tank mine. Miraculously, the vehicle survives. In a nearby Bradley, the crew congratulate vehicle commander Lieutenant Hillen on his foresight, before frantically repositioning onto Kevlar vests of their own. At 6.40pm, just 22 minutes after the first shots were fired, Eagle Troop arrives at the 73 Easting, and the shooting wanes. McMaster calls for a status report, and is astounded to find that Eagle Troop has not lost a single vehicle, nor a single weapon system disabled. Eagle alone has destroyed an entire Republican Guard battalion of approximately 47 tanks, 34 armoured vehicles and numerous trucks, with many bunkers destroyed and scores of infantrymen killed. The destruction along the front line is similarly conclusive. American gunnery and firepower is superior, and the advantage of having infrared optics in the storm is decisive. Other engaged units don't need to perform the aggressive charge that Eagle Troop were forced into after cresting the hill and finding the enemy at short range. They're able to use superior range of the Abrams over the T-72 to keep the enemy at arm's length while destroying them. At 5pm, 
Ghost Troop of 2nd Armoured Cavalry are also at the 73 Easting, holding a defensive line with Eagle Troop. A counter-attacking formation of Iraqi armour approaches, and Ghost Troop requests artillery support. Their toes hit the first BMP as the artillery falls. The artillery shells used are dual-purpose improved conventional munitions, DPICM. The shell detonates close to the target and showers it with armour-piercing cluster bomblets. The 14 attacking vehicles are wiped out over the next 15 minutes. Over the next three hours, two similar counter-attacks are attempted, but with the weather clearing up, the troops of 2nd Armoured Cavalry are able to begin calling in A-10 airstrikes on the approaching armour. Now that they're holding the 73 Easting, they can bring their artillery to bear into a killing zone to their front. After many exhausting hours of repelling piecemeal Iraqi attacks, at 2am the 2nd Armoured Cavalry Regiment is finally relieved on the front line by the 1st Infantry Division. Their work has been Herculean. The regiment as a whole has destroyed two whole brigades of the Tarakauna Republican Guard Division for the loss of only six men, accounting for 159 enemy tanks and 260 armoured vehicles. By comparison, the entire 1st and 3rd Armoured Divisions combined had destroyed a further 76 tanks and 84 armoured vehicles. 7 Corps continues to press east through the night, continuing the fight with the Republican Guard. The British 1st Armoured Division moves northeast to join the rest of the Corps at an area of land known as Objective Norfolk, where the final showdown with the Tawakauna Division will take place in the early hours of Day 4. The US 1st Armoured Division sets its sights on the Medina Republican Guard Division further north, encamped and waiting on a hill the US troops would later call Medina Ridge. In Kuwait, the coalition divisions continue their methodical advance north. There are reports of atrocities and prisoner snatching by the retreating Iraqi forces in the city, so the coalition advances with haste to liberate Kuwait City. The two US Marine Divisions approach Kuwait International Airport. Their objective in Day 4 will be to capture it, and then to move into Kuwait City with their Arab allies, including three Kuwaiti forces. As the clock ticks through midnight into Day 4, the US Armoured Divisions continue their advance east, pulverising the Tawakauna Republican Guard Division with few losses. The armoured fist punch that began with the Battle of 73 Easting yesterday has broadened into the Battle of Norfolk overnight, with hundreds of Iraqi tanks destroyed. Over the hours of the early morning, the American tanks continued the tactic employed thus far, to use their superior range against the Iraqi T-72s to keep them at arm's length while destroying them. A brigade of the Adnan Republican Guard Division of motorised infantry moves south against the US 1st Armoured Division overnight, and wounds 23 American soldiers with artillery fire. The Adnan are motorised and fast-moving as their vehicles are mostly made up of trucks and light armour. They are attacking to slow the 1st Armoured Division's advance, to give their comrades in the Medina Republican Guard Division to the east more time to set up defensive positions. The US MLRS batteries launch a devastating counter-attack of cluster bomblets in return. Throughout the night, using their night vision optics, an entire battalion of Apache attack helicopters and Air Force A-10s move in and rain hell on the Adnan Division from above. 
Within a few hours, no resistance has ceased, and the hastily organised Adnan division dissipates into the night, with those unable to escape surrendering. Behind the Republican Guard, the Coalition Air Forces continue to hammer Iraqi commandeered vehicles retreating from the Kuwait theatre along what would become known as the Highway of Death. Throughout days 3 and 4, the Iraqis have been setting fire to the Kuwaiti oil wells as they retreat. The burning oil causes a massive environmental disaster in the area. Despite the Iraqis believing that the rugged terrain south of the Euphrates Valley is too difficult for an armoured division to negotiate, the 24th Infantry Division reached their objective, securing Highway 8 east of where the 101st had done so a couple of days earlier. They blockade the highway, destroying over 100 vehicles retreating westwards, with tank and tow fire. Bedouin nomads, watching from atop a nearby ridgeline, politely applaud as tank rounds hit their target. Despite being slow out of the blocks, the Egyptian, Saudi, Syrian and Kuwaiti armoured divisions of Joint Forces Command North have carefully advanced into Kuwait against concentrated Iraqi defences. They have successfully destroyed multiple Iraqi frontline divisions and advanced northeast towards Kuwait City itself. The Arab forces of Joint Forces Command East also advanced towards the city. The 1st Marine Division sets its sights on the Kuwait City International Airport and the 2nd Marine Division moves towards the west side of the city to cut off any vehicles still retreating. As the sun rises, at 6am the 1st Marine Division's task forces Shepard and Papa Bear who had held off a fierce Iraqi counter-attack two days earlier, breach the airfield perimeter and advance across the runways towards what's left of the hangars. The fight that they had planned for never materialises. US battleship gunfire bombardment and airstrikes have reduced the airport to ruins and the area is deserted of Iraqis. A US and a Kuwaiti flag are raised over the airport, but after consideration of political etiquette, the US flag is lowered. Demonstrating excellent political awareness, General Schwarzkopf orders all US Marines to halt their advance into Kuwait City itself. He knows how important it is to the people that Kuwaiti forces advance into and liberate their own capital. At 9am, Kuwaiti troops enter the suburbs of their beloved city. With the liberation of Kuwait City in sight, the other coalition war goal, to eliminate the Republican Guard as an effective fighting force in the region, is ongoing. With the battle for objective Norfolk ongoing to their south, at just after midday, the 2nd Brigade of the US 1st Armoured Division edge forward in the haze towards the Medina Republican Guard Division. With the Tawakalna nearly finished off, and the Adnan Republican Guard Division swept aside earlier, the Medina Division are now the last organised force to stand up to American armour. Behind the Medina lie seven Iraqi logistics sites for the Kuwaiti Theatre. To the rear and left of the US 1st Armoured Division is the 3rd Armoured Cavalry Regiment of 18 Corps, trying to catch them up on the outside with the 24th Infantry Division. Poor positional coordination between 7 and 18 Corps results in gunners from the 3rd Armoured Cavalry mistaking the rear of 1st Armoured for Iraqis. A brief friendly fire incident results in one American killed. With ongoing airstrikes harassing them, the Medina have been slow and disorganised in arranging their defensive line. Some units are still pointing southwest, expecting a coalition thrust from the area of the ongoing Battle of Norfolk in that direction. As the 348 Abrams tanks of the 1st Armoured Division approach from the west, 
The Iraqi troops are using the false safety of overcast rainy weather to eat a lunch of rice and tomatoes with a distinct lack of onions outside of their vehicles. In a similar tactics to the Tawakauna division yesterday, the Medina's tanks are waiting on the other side of a small hill, ready to hit American tanks as they crest it. But they've made a critical error. They have failed to verify their exact distance to the crest of the hill and are entrenched out of range of it with their T-72s. As the American tanks in the centre and left flank crest the hill, their commanders begin to pick out targets through their thermal imaging sensors in the Merc. At 12.17pm, the first rounds rip into the unsuspecting Iraqi T-72s. The American commanders calculate that they are beyond the range of the enemy tanks, and so halt on the high ground. The Iraqis, scrambling into their tanks, helplessly return fire at the muzzle flashes in the mist, their rounds falling short of the American line. For the next 40 minutes, the engaged elements of the 1st Armoured Division simply sit there picking off Iraqi tanks and armoured vehicles with impunity. The Iraqis desperately call in artillery support, but the rounds fall behind the front line of Abrams tanks. Without any real way of knowing where the rounds are landing, the artillery continues without correction and misses. The 75th Field Artillery Brigade and the 1st and 25th Field Artillery Regiments respond. Using artillery acquisition radars, the US artillery is able to detect the firing of an Iraqi artillery piece, pinpoint its exact position, and return counter-artillery fire on it before the Iraqi round has even landed. Within just a few minutes, two entire artillery battalions of the Medina Division have been wiped out, and the US artillery can focus its attention on the Iraqi armor. To their north, the 24th Infantry Division begin a similar attack on the Jabal and Talil airbases, defended by the significantly weakened but spirited Nabushad Nezar Republican Guard Division. 40 minutes after the battle began, the Medina's right flank has been completely destroyed, and the right flank of the American force is just beginning to smash into the Medina's left. In this sector, many Iraqi tanks are pointing southwest. The nearest tanks are destroyed before they can even rotate their turrets towards the Americans. Those that do fire back find that they are again outranged. Scrambled air power is now arriving to expedite the destruction. Apache attack helicopters come to hover just behind the front line of Abrams and Bradley's. They launch Hellfire missiles over the heads of their comrades into the enemy. A-10s also arrive overhead and tumble Iraqi vehicles just outside the range of the ground forces. In the midst of the carnage, General Franks, commander of 7 Corps, flies to visit Major General Griffith, commander of the 1st Armoured Division. However, the pilots of this helicopter get lost, and they fly over the Iraqi line. His helicopter flies from the Iraqi lines towards the US line. With his Black Hawk equipped with stub wings and external fuel tanks, in the mist they could easily have been mistaken for a similar looking Iraqi Mi-24 attack helicopter. It's a miracle that neither Iraqi nor American air defences open fire on him. The battle would become known as the Battle of Medina Ridge. It lasts just two hours, during which 186 Iraqi tanks and 172 armoured vehicles are destroyed. Four American Abrams tanks are lost. After action reports conclude most likely to Iraqi tank fire, but that friendly fire by the Apaches can't be ruled out. After the war, Colonel Montgomery Majors, the commander of the 2nd Brigade of the 1st Armoured Division, would pay tribute to the bravery of the Medina Republican Guard Division. These guys stayed and fought, he said. 
In the afternoon of day four, both the Tawakauna and Medina Republican Guard divisions are now effectively destroyed. The Adnan, Nabushad Nazar and Al-4 infantry divisions are routed and retreating. The avenue to the coast is now open, and the race is on to cut off these three divisions and the Hammurabi Armoured Division before they can make their escape north of the Euphrates. Airstrikes involving A-10s and four Apache battalions of the 101st Airborne are directed against all of them to try to slow down their retreat until 7 and 18 Corps, now struggling for fuel with the very long supply routes from Saudi Arabia, can arrive to destroy them. The bombing and killing is merciless on the retreating and disorganized Iraqi forces, both in eastern Iraq and at the Highway of Death. General Schwarzkopf and President Bush in Washington agree that to continue the killing for the sake of killing risks the coalition losing moral authority on the world stage, not to mention the psychological effects on their troops in the merciless killing of those who can no longer fight back. They begin to discuss and prepare for a ceasefire. In the meantime, 7 and 18 Corps continue to chase east towards the coast, attempting to envelop enemy divisions. Further south, having completed their objectives ahead of schedule in the afternoon, 7 Corps Commander General Franks had planned for the British 1st Armoured Division to head northeast into the area of the fleeing Republican Guard. But after another friendly fire incident this morning, where gunners from the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars were wounded by tank shells of the US 1st Infantry Division, he makes a political call. More British troops have regrettably now been killed and wounded by US friendly fire than by Iraqis, and parading the British 1st Armoured in front of the exhausted 1st Infantry Division is likely to result in further tragedy. Accepting a change in orders with good humour, General Rupert Smith relays Frank's instructions to his troops. Advance east and cut off any further retreating Iraqis from Kuwait City at the coast to the north. Refusing to once again be shot at by Allies, the British crews hoist Union Jacks and regimental colours atop their vehicles. Like their predecessors in North Africa, the desert rats race across the desert, thousands of flags fluttering in the wind. The US Air Force is caught off guard for a special mission plan. It was their intention to dispatch F-111s to Baghdad in a final attempt to kill Saddam Hussein himself. But the war is coming to an end far sooner than anticipated. On Wednesday afternoon, a C-141 delivers a pair of 4,700-pound GBU-28 bunker-busting bombs, which are swiftly loaded onto the aircraft and sent out. The GBU-28 have been crash-developed over the last six months. The two delivered are still warm to the touch from the molten explosive material poured in by the armourers in Florida just hours earlier. At 8pm, the two F-111s scream over a bunker complex northwest of Baghdad and drop their large bombs. The first misses, but the second penetrates into the underground bunker system and kills everyone inside. It turns out that Saddam was not present. While the F-111s were en route, General Schwarzkopf leaves his war room to host a press conference to the world media. For the first time, he explains the coalition's war strategy and progress up until this moment, and reports that the gates are closed to Iraqi forces retreating north. As the coalition ground forces are still racing east to try to cut them off in time, what he means is that he believes that air power alone is slowing the retreat fast enough that Seven Corps will eventually get there in time. Unfortunately, this isn't the case. 
and the Adnan, Nabushadnezar, and Al Thor divisions, and the remnants of the Medina, escape over the Euphrates throughout the night. Seven Corps continues east into the following morning, destroying straggling units, seizing logistics areas, and rounding up prisoners of war. At 8am on the 28th of February 1991, the fifth day of the Ground War of Desert Storm, a cessation of hostilities order is sent to all coalition forces. The Gulf War is over. Over the coming months, after the euphoria of victory wears off, questions will be asked about the decision to cease hostilities so soon, and whether the imagery of the slaughter south of Basra and the Highway of Death would have been worth the strategic war goal of destroying the Republican Guard for good. But the primary war goal for the 35 nations that mobilized against Saddam Hussein was to rid Kuwait of Iraqi forces. Thanks to an elite display of generalship by Coalition Commander General Norman Schwarzkopf and the hard work, dedication, bravery and sacrifice of the armed forces that stood together, the Kuwaiti flag rightly flies over Kuwait City.